Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White The Monk, A Romance by Matthew Gregory Lewis Chapter 6, Part 1 While in each other's arms, in trance they lay, they bless the night and curse the coming day. Lee The burst of transport was past. Ambrosio's lust was satisfied. Pleasure, fled, and shame usurped her seat in his bosom. Confused and terrified at his weakness, he drew himself from Matilda's arms. His perjury presented itself before him. He reflected on the scene which had just been acted, and trembled at the consequences of a discovery. He looked forward with horror. His heart was despondent and became the abode of satiety and disgust. He avoided the eyes of his partner in frailty. A melancholy silence prevailed, during which both seemed busied with disagreeable reflections. Matilda was the first to break it. She took his hand gently and pressed it to her burning lips. "'Ambrosio,' she murmured in a soft and trembling voice. The abbot started at the sound. He turned his eyes upon Matilda's. They were filled with tears, her cheeks were covered with blushes, and her supplicating looks seemed to solicit his compassion. "'Dangerous woman,' said he, "'into what an abyss of misery have you plunged me? Should your sex be discovered, my honour, nay, my life, must pay for the pleasure of a few moments.' Fool that I was to trust myself to your seductions. What can now be done? How can my offense be expiated? What atonement can purchase the pardon of my crime? Wretched Matilda, you have destroyed my quiet forever. To me these reproaches, Ambrosio? To me, who have sacrificed for you the world's pleasures, the luxury of wealth, the delicacy of sex, my friends, my fortune, and my fame? What have you lost which I preserved? Have I not shared in your guilt? Have you not shared in my pleasure? Guilt, did I say? In what consists ours, unless in the opinion of an ill-judging world? Let that world be ignorant of them, and our joys become divine and blameless. Unnatural were your vows of celibacy. Man was not created for such a state, and were love a crime, God never would have made it so sweet, so irresistible. Then banish those clouds from your brow, my Ambrosio. Indulge in those pleasures freely, 
without which life is a worthless gift. Cease to reproach me with having taught you what is bliss, and feel equal transports with the woman who adores you. As she spoke, her eyes were filled with a delicious languor. Her bosom panted. She twined her arms voluptuously round him, drew him towards her, and glued her lips to his. Ambrosio again raged with desire. The die was thrown, his vows were already broken. He had already committed the crime, and why should he refrain from enjoying its reward? He clasped her to his breast with redoubled ardor. No longer repressed by the sense of shame, he gave a loose to his intemperate appetites. While the fair wanton put every invention of lust in practice, every refinement in the art of pleasure, which might heighten the bliss of her possession and render her lover's transports still more exquisite. Ambrosio rioted in delights till then unknown to him. Swift fled the night, and the morning blushed to behold him still clasped in the embraces of Matilda. Intoxicated with pleasure, the monk rose from the siren's luxurious couch. He no longer reflected with shame upon his incontinence or dreaded the vengeance of offended heaven. His only fear was lest death should rob him of enjoyments for which his long fast had only given a keener edge to his appetite. Matilda was still under the influence of poison, and the voluptuous monk trembled less for his preserver's life than his concubines. Deprived of her, he would not easily find another mistress with whom he could indulge his passions so fully and so safely. He therefore pressed her with earnestness to use the means of preservation which she had declared to be in her possession. "'Yes,' replied Matilda, "'since you have made me feel that life is valuable, I will rescue mine at any rate. No dangers shall appall me. I will look upon the consequences of my action boldly, nor shudder at the horrors which they present. I will think my sacrifice scarcely worthy to purchase your possession. And remember that a moment passed in your arms in this world o'erpays an age of punishment in the next. But before I take this step, Ambrosio, give me your solemn oath never to inquire by what means I shall preserve myself. He did so, in a manner the most binding. I thank you, my beloved. This precaution is necessary, for, though you know it not, you are under the command of vulgar prejudices. The business on which I must be employed this night might startle you from its singularity and lower me in your opinion. Tell me, are you possessed of the key of the low door on the western side of the garden? The door which opens into the burying ground common to us and the sisterhood of St. Clair? I have not the key, but can easily procure it. You have only this to do. Admit me into the burying ground at midnight. Watch while I descend into the vaults of St. Clair, lest some prying eye should observe my actions. Leave me there alone for an hour, and that life is safe which I dedicate to your pleasures. To prevent creating suspicion, do not visit me during the day. Remember the key, and that I expect you before twelve. Hark, I hear steps approaching. Leave me. I will pretend to sleep. The friar obeyed and left the cell. As he opened the door, Father Pablos made his appearance. I come, said the latter, to inquire after the health of my young patient. Hush, replied Ambrosio, 
laying his finger upon his lip. Speak softly. I am just come from him. He has fallen into a profound slumber which doubtless will be of service to him. Do not disturb him at present, for he wishes to repose. Father Pablos obeyed, and, hearing the bell ring, accompanied the abbot to Matins. Ambrosio felt embarrassed as he entered the chapel. Guilt was new to him, and he fancied that every eye could read the transactions of the night upon his countenance. He strove to pray. His bosom no longer glowed with devotion. His thoughts insensibly wandered to Matilda's secret charms. But what he wanted in purity of heart he supplied by exterior sanctity. The better to cloak his transgression, he redoubled his pretensions to the semblance of virtue, and never appeared more devoted to heaven than since he had broken through his engagements. Thus did he unconsciously add hypocrisy to perjury and incontinence. He had fallen into the latter errors from yielding to seduction almost irresistible, but he was now guilty of a voluntary fault by endeavouring to conceal those into which another had betrayed him. The matins concluded. Ambrosio retired to his cell. The pleasures which he had just tasted for the first time were still impressed upon his mind. His brain was bewildered and presented a confused chaos of remorse, voluptuousness, inquietude, and fear. He looked back with regret to that peace of soul, that security of virtue, which till then had been his portion. He had indulged in excesses whose very idea but four and twenty hours before he had recoiled at with horror. He shuddered at reflecting that a trifling indiscretion on his part, or on Matilda's, would overturn that fabric of reputation which it had cost him thirty years to erect, and render him the abhorrence of that people of whom he was then the idol. Conscience painted to him in glaring colors his perjury and weakness. Apprehension magnified to him the horrors of punishment, and he already fancied himself in the prisons of the Inquisition. To these tormenting ideas succeeded Matilda's beauty, and those delicious lessons which once learned can never be forgotten. A single glance thrown upon these reconciled him with himself. He considered the pleasures of the former night to have been purchased at an easy price for the sacrifice of innocence and honor. Their very remembrance filled his soul with ecstasy. He cursed his foolish vanity, which had induced him to waste in obscurity the bloom of life, ignorant of the blessings of love and woman. He determined, at all events, to continue his commerce with Matilda, and called every argument to his aid which might confirm his resolution. He asked himself, provided his irregularity was unknown, in what would his fault consist, and what consequences he had to apprehend. By adhering strictly to every rule of his order save chastity, he doubted not to retain the esteem of men, and even the protection of heaven. He trusted easily to be forgiven so slight and natural a deviation from his vows. But he forgot that, having pronounced those vows, incontinence, in layman the most venial of errors, became in his person the most heinous of crimes. Once decided upon his future conduct, his mind became more easy. He threw himself upon his bed, and strove, by sleeping, to recruit his strength, exhausted by his nocturnal excesses. He awoke refreshed, and eager for a repetition of his pleasures. 
obedient to Matilda's order, he visited not her cell during the day. Father Pablos mentioned in the refectory that Rosario had at length been prevailed upon to follow his prescription, but that the medicine had not produced the slightest effect, and that he believed no mortal skill could rescue him from the grave. With this opinion the abbot agreed, and affected to lament the untimely fate of a youth whose talents had appeared so promising. The night arrived. Ambrosio had taken care to procure from the porter the key of the low door opening into the cemetery. Furnished with this, when all was silent in the monastery, he quitted his cell and hastened to Matilda's. She had left her bed and was dressed before his arrival. I have been expecting you with impatience, said she. My life depends upon these moments. Have you the key? I have. Away, then, to the garden. We have no time to lose. Follow me. She took a small covered basket from the table. Bearing this in one hand and the lamp which was flaming upon the hearth in the other, she hastened from the cell. Ambrosio followed her. Both maintained a profound silence. She moved on with quick but cautious steps, passed through the cloisters and reached the western side of the garden. Her eyes flashed with a fire and wildness which impressed the monk at once with awe and horror. A determined, desperate courage reigned upon her brow. She gave the lamp to Ambrosio. Then, taking from him the key, she unlocked the low door and entered the cemetery. It was a vast and spacious square, planted with yew-trees. Half of it belonged to the abbey. The other half was the property of the sisterhood of St. Clair, and was protected by a roof of stone. The division was marked by an iron railing, the wicket of which was generally left unlocked. Thither Matilda bent her course. She opened the wicket, and sought for the door leading to the subterraneous vaults where reposed the mouldering bodies of the votaries of St. Clair. The night was perfectly dark. Neither moon nor stars were visible. Luckily there was not a breath of wind, and the friar bore his lamp in full security. By the assistance of its beams, the door of the sepulchre was soon discovered. It was sunk within the hollow of a wall, and almost concealed by thick festoons of ivy hanging over it. Three steps of rough-hewn stone conducted to it, and Matilda was on the point of descending them when she suddenly started back. "'There are people in the vaults,' she whispered to the monk. "'Conceal yourself till they are past.' She took refuge behind a lofty and magnificent tomb, erected in honor of the convent's foundress. Ambrosio followed her example, carefully hiding his lamp, lest its beams should betray them. But a few moments had elapsed when the door was pushed open, leading to the subterraneous caverns. Rays of light proceeded up the staircase. They enabled the concealed spectators to observe two females, dressed in religious habits, who seemed engaged in earnest conversation. The abbot had no difficulty to recognize the prioress of St. Clair in the first, and one of the elder nuns in her companion. "'Everything is prepared,' said the prioress. "'Her fate shall be decided to-morrow. All her tears and sighs will be unavailing.' "'No.' In five and twenty years that I have been superior of this convent, never did I witness a transaction more infamous. 
"'You must expect much opposition to your will,' the other replied, in a milder voice. "'Agnes has many friends in the convent, and, in particular, the mother St. Ursula will espouse her cause most warmly. In truth, she merits to have friends, and I wish I could prevail upon you to consider her youth and her peculiar situation. She seems sensible of her fault. The excess of her grief proves her penitence, and I am convinced that her tears flow more from contrition than fear of punishment. Reverend Mother, would you be persuaded to mitigate the severity of your sentence? Would you but deign to overlook this first transgression? I offer myself as the pledge of her future conduct. Overlook it, say you, Mother Camilla? You amaze me. What, after disgracing me in the presence of Madrid's idol, of the very man on whom I most wish to impress an idea of the strictness of my discipline? How despicable must I have appeared to the Reverend Abbot! No, mother, no, I never can forgive the insult. I cannot better convince Ambrosio that I abhor such crimes than by punishing that of Agnes with all the rigor of which our severe laws admit. Cease, then, your supplications. They will all be unavailing. My resolution is taken. Tomorrow Agnes shall be made a terrible example of my justice and resentment. The mother Camilla seemed not to give up the point, but by this time the nuns were out of hearing. The prioress unlocked the door which communicated with St. Clair's chapel, and having entered with her companion, closed it again after them. Matilda now asked who was this Agnes, with whom the prioress was thus incensed, and what connection she could have with Ambrosio. He related her adventure, and he added that since that time, his ideas having undergone a thorough revolution, he now felt much compassion for the unfortunate nun. I design, said he, to request an audience of the domina to-morrow, and use every means of obtaining a mitigation of her sentence. Beware of what you do, interrupted Matilda. Your sudden change of sentiment may naturally create surprise, and may give birth to suspicions which it is most our interest to avoid. Rather redouble your outward austerity, and thunder out menaces against the errors of others, the better to conceal your own. Abandon the nun to her fate. Your interfering might be dangerous, and her imprudence merits to be punished. She is unworthy to enjoy love's pleasures, who has not wit enough to conceal them. But in discussing this trifling subject, I waste moments which are precious. The night flies apace, and much must be done before morning. The nuns are retired. All is safe. Give me the lamp, Ambrosio. I must descend alone into these caverns. Wait here and if any one approaches, warn me by your voice. But as you value your existence, presume not to follow me. Your life would fall a victim to your imprudent curiosity. Thus saying, she advanced towards the sepulchre, still holding her lamp in one hand, and her little basket in the other. She touched the door. It turned slowly upon its grating hinges, and a narrow winding staircase of black marble presented itself to her eyes. She descended it. Ambrosio remained above, watching the faint beams of the lamp as they still receded down the stairs. They disappeared, and he found himself in total darkness. Left to himself, he could not reflect without surprise on the sudden change in Matilda's character and sentiments. 
but a few days had passed since she appeared the mildest and softest of her sex devoted to his will and looking up to him as to a superior being now she assumed a sort of courage and manliness in her manners and discourse but ill calculated to please him she spoke no longer to insinuate but command he found himself unable to cope with her in argument and was unwillingly obliged to confess the superiority of her judgment every moment convinced him of the astonishing powers of her mind but what she gained in the opinion of the man she lost with interest in the affection of the lover he regretted rosario the fond the gentle and submissive he grieved that matilda preferred the virtues of his sex to those of her own and when he thought of her expressions respecting the devoted nun he could not help blaming them as cruel and unfeminine pity is a sentiment so natural so appropriate to the female character that it is scarcely a merit for a woman to possess it but to be without it is a grievous crime ambrosio could not easily forgive his mistress for being deficient in this amiable quality however though he blamed her insensibility he felt the truth of her observations and though he pitied sincerely the unfortunate agnes he resolved to drop the idea of interposing in her behalf near an hour had elapsed since matilda descended into the caverns still she returned not ambrosio's curiosity was excited he drew near the staircase he listened all was silent except that at intervals he caught the sound of matilda's voice as it wound along the subterraneous passages and was re-echoed by the sepulchre's vaulted roofs she was at too great a distance for him to distinguish her words and ere they reached him they were deadened in a low murmur he longed to penetrate into this mystery he resolved to disobey her injunctions and follow her into the cavern he advanced to the staircase he had already descended some steps when his courage failed him he remembered matilda's menaces if he infringed her orders and his bosom was filled with a secret unaccountable awe he returned up the stairs resumed his former station and waited impatiently for the conclusion of this adventure suddenly he was sensible of a violent shock an earthquake rocked the ground the columns which supported the roof under which he stood were so strongly shaken that every moment menaced him with its fall and at the same moment he heard a loud and tremendous burst of thunder it ceased and his eyes being fixed upon the staircase he saw a bright column of light flash along the caverns beneath it was seen but for an instant no sooner did it disappear than all was once more quiet and obscure profound darkness again surrounded him and the silence of night was only broken by the whirring bat as she flitted slowly by him with every instant ambrosio's amazement increased another hour elapsed after which the same light again appeared and was lost again as suddenly it was accompanied by a strain of sweet but solemn music which as it stole through the vaults below inspired the monk with mingled delight and terror it had not long been hushed when he heard matilda's steps upon the staircase she ascended from the cavern the most lively joy animated her beautiful features did you see anything she asked 
Twice I saw a column of light flash up the staircase. Nothing else? Nothing. The morning is on the point of breaking. Let us retire to the abbey, lest daylight should betray us. With a light step she hastened from the burying ground. She regained her cell, and the curious abbot still accompanied her. She closed the door, and disembarrassed herself of lamp and basket. I have succeeded, she cried, throwing herself upon his bosom, succeeded beyond my fondest hopes. I shall live, Ambrosio, shall live for you. The step which I shuddered at taking proves to me a source of joys inexpressible. Oh, that I dared communicate those joys to you. Oh, that I were permitted to share with you my power and raise you as high above the level of your sex as one bold deed has exalted me above mine. And what prevents you, Matilda? interrupted the friar. Why is your business in the cavern made a secret? Do you think me undeserving of your confidence? Matilda, I must doubt the truth of your affection, while you have joys in which I am forbidden to share. You reproach me with injustice. I grieve sincerely that I am obliged to conceal from you my happiness, but I am not to blame. The fault lies not in me, but in yourself, my Ambrosio. You are still too much the monk. Your mind is enslaved by the prejudices of education, and superstition might make you shudder at the idea of that which experience has taught me to prize and value. At present you are unfit to be trusted with a secret of such importance, but the strength of your judgment and the curiosity which I rejoice to see sparkling in your eyes make me hope that you will one day deserve my confidence. Till that period arrives, restrain your impatience. Remember that you have given me your solemn oath never to inquire into this night's adventures. I insist upon your keeping this oath, for though, she added smiling while she sealed his lips with a wanton kiss, though I forgive your breaking your vows to heaven, I expect you to keep your vows to me. The friar returned the embrace which had set his blood on fire. The luxurious and unbounded excesses of the former night were renewed, and they separated not till the bell rang for matins. The same pleasures were frequently repeated. The monks rejoiced in the feigned Rosario's unexpected recovery, and none of them suspected his real sex. The abbot possessed his mistress in tranquillity, and perceiving his frailty unsuspected, abandoned himself to his passions in full security. Shame and remorse no longer tormented him. Frequent repetitions made him familiar with sin, and his bosom became proof against the stings of conscience. In these sentiments he was encouraged by Matilda, but she soon was aware that she had satiated her lover by the unbounded freedom of her caresses. Her charms becoming accustomed to him, they ceased to excite the same desires which at first they had inspired. The delirium of passion being past, he had leisure to observe every trifling defect. Where none were to be found, satiety made him fancy them. The monk was glutted with the fullness of pleasure. A week had scarcely elapsed before he was wearied of his paramour. His warm constitution still made him seek in her arms the gratification of his lust. But when the moment of passion was over, he quitted her with disgust, and his humor, naturally inconstant, made him sigh impatiently for variety. Possession, which cloys man, 
only increases the affection of women. Matilda, with every succeeding day, grew more attached to the friar. Since he had obtained her favors, he was become dearer to her than ever, and she felt grateful to him for the pleasures in which they had equally been sharers. Unfortunately, as her passion grew ardent, Ambrosio's grew cold. The very marks of her fondness excited his disgust, and its excess served to extinguish the flame which already burned out feebly in his bosom. Matilda could not but remark that her society seemed to him daily less agreeable. He was inattentive while she spoke. Her musical talents, which she possessed in perfection, had lost the power of amusing him. Or, if he deigned to praise them, his compliments were evidently forced and cold. He no longer gazed upon her with affection, or applauded her sentiments with a lover's partiality. This Matilda well perceived, and redoubled her efforts to revive those sentiments which he once had felt. She could not but fail, since he considered as importunities the pains which she took to please him, and was disgusted by the very means which she used to recall the wanderer. Still, however, their illicit commerce continued, but it was clear that he was led to her arms not by love, but the cravings of brutal appetite. His constitution made a woman necessary to him, and Matilda was the only one with whom he could indulge his passion safely. In spite of her beauty, he gazed upon every other female with more desire, but, fearing that his hypocrisy should be made public, he confined his inclinations to his own breast. It was by no means his nature to be timid, but his education had impressed his mind with fear so strongly that apprehension was now become part of his character. Had his youth been passed in the world, he would have shown himself possessed of many brilliant and manly qualities. He was naturally enterprising, firm, and fearless. He had a warrior's heart, and he might have shown with splendor at the head of an army. There was no want of generosity in his nature. The wretched never failed to find in him a compassionate auditor. His abilities were quick and shining, and his judgment vast, solid, and decisive. With such qualifications, he would have been an ornament to his country. That he possessed them, he had given proof in his earliest infancy, and his parents had beheld his dawning virtues with the fondest delight and admiration. Unfortunately, while yet a child, he was deprived of those parents. He fell into the power of a relation whose only wish about him was never to hear of him more. For that purpose, he gave him in charge to his friend, the former superior of the Capuchins. The abbot, a very monk, used all his endeavors to persuade the boy that happiness existed not without the walls of a convent. He succeeded fully. To deserve admittance into the order of St. Francis was Ambrosio's highest ambition. His instructors carefully repressed those virtues whose grandeur and disinterestedness were ill-suited to the cloister. Instead of universal benevolence, he adopted a selfish partiality for his own particular establishment. He was taught to consider compassion for the errors of others as a crime of the blackest dye. The noble frankness of his temper was exchanged for servile humility. And in order to break his natural spirit, the monks terrified his young mind by placing before him all the horrors with which superstition could furnish them. 
they painted to him the torments of the damned in colors the most dark terrible and fantastic and threatened him at the slightest fault with eternal perdition no wonder that his imagination constantly dwelling upon these fearful objects should have rendered his character timid and apprehensive add to this that his long absence from the great world and total unacquaintance with the common dangers of life made him form of them an idea far more dismal than the reality while the monks were busied in rooting out his virtues and narrowing his sentiments they allowed every vice which had fallen to his share to arrive at full perfection he was suffered to be proud vain ambitious and disdainful he was jealous of his equals and despised all merit but his own he was implacable when offended and cruel in his revenge still in spite of the pains taken to pervert them his natural good qualities would occasionally break through the gloom cast over them so carefully at such times the contest for superiority between his real and acquired character was striking and unaccountable to those unacquainted with his original disposition he pronounced the most severe sentences upon offenders which the moment after compassion induced him to mitigate he undertook the most daring enterprises which the fear of their consequences soon obliged him to abandon his inborn genius darted a brilliant light upon subjects the most obscure and almost instantaneously his superstition replunged them in darkness more profound than that from which they had just been rescued his brother monks regarding him as a superior being remarked not this contradiction in their idol's conduct they were persuaded that what he did must be right and supposed him to have good reasons for changing his resolutions the fact was that the different sentiments with which education and nature had inspired him were combating in his bosom it remained for his passions which as yet no opportunity had called into play to decide the victory unfortunately his passions were the very worst judges to whom he could possibly have applied his monastic seclusion had till now been in his favor since it gave him no room for discovering his bad qualities the superiority of his talents raised him too far above his companions to permit his being jealous of them his exemplary piety persuasive eloquence and pleasing manners had secured him universal esteem and consequently he had no injuries to revenge his ambition was justified by his acknowledged merit and his pride considered as no more than proper confidence he never saw much less conversed with the other sex he was ignorant of the pleasures in women's power to bestow and if he read in the course of his studies that men were fond he smiled and wondered how for a time spare diet frequent watching and severe penance cooled and repressed the natural warmth of his constitution but no sooner did opportunity present itself no sooner did he catch a glimpse of joys to which he was still a stranger then religion's barriers were too feeble to resist the overwhelming torrent of his desires all impediments yielded before the force of his temperament warm sanguine and voluptuous in the excess as yet his other passions lay dormant but they only needed to be once awakened to display themselves with violence as great and irresistible 
He continued to be the admiration of Madrid. The enthusiasm created by his eloquence seemed rather to increase than diminish. Every Thursday, which was the only day when he appeared in public, the Capuchin Cathedral was crowded with auditors, and his discourse was always received with the same approbation. He was named confessor to all the chief families in Madrid, and no one was counted fashionable who was enjoined penance by any other than Ambrosio. In his resolution of never stirring out of his convent he still persisted. This circumstance created a still greater opinion of his sanctity and self-denial. Above all, the women sang forth his praises loudly, less influenced by devotion than by his noble countenance, majestic air, and well-turned graceful figure. The abbey door was thronged with carriages from morning to night, and the noblest and fairest dames of Madrid confessed to the abbot their secret peccadilloes. The eyes of the luxurious friar devoured their charms. Had his penitents consulted these interpreters, he would have needed no other means of expressing his desires. For his misfortune, they were so strongly persuaded of his continence that the possibility of his harboring indecent thoughts never once entered their imaginations. The climate's heat, tis well known, operates with no small influence upon the constitutions of the Spanish ladies, but the most abandoned would have thought it an easier task to inspire with passion the marble statue of St. Francis than the cold and rigid heart of the immaculate Ambrosio. On his part, the friar was little acquainted with the depravity of the world. He suspected not that but few of his penitents would have rejected his addresses. Yet had he been better instructed on this head, the danger attending such an attempt would have sealed up his lips in silence. He knew that it would be difficult for a woman to keep a secret so strange and so important as his frailty, and he even trembled lest Matilda should betray him. Anxious to preserve a reputation which was infinitely dear to him, he saw all the risk of committing it to the power of some vain, giddy female, and as the beauties of Madrid affected only his senses without touching his heart, he forgot them as soon as they were out of his sight. The danger of discovery, the fear of being repulsed, the loss of reputation, all these considerations counseled him to stifle his desires, and though he now felt for it the most perfect indifference, he was necessitated to confine himself to Matilda's person. One morning, the confluence of penitence was greater than usual. He was detained in the confessional chair till a late hour. At length, the crowd was dispatched, and he prepared to quit the chapel, when two females entered, and drew near him with humility. They threw up their veils, and the youngest entreated him to listen to her for a few moments. The melody of her voice, of that voice to which no man ever listened without interest, immediately caught Ambrosio's attention. He stopped. The petitioner seemed bowed down with affliction. Her cheeks were pale, her eyes dimmed with tears, and her hair fell in disorder over her face and bosom. Still, her countenance was so sweet, so innocent, so heavenly, as might have charmed a heart less susceptible than that which panted in the abbot's breast. With more than usual softness of manner, he desired her to proceed, and heard her speak as follows, with an emotion which increased every moment. 
Reverend Father, you see an unfortunate threatened with the loss of her dearest, of almost her only friend. My mother, my excellent mother, lies upon the bed of sickness. A sudden and dreadful malady seized her last night, and so rapid has been its progress that the physicians despair of her life. Human aid fails me. Nothing remains for me but to implore the mercy of heaven. Father, all Madrid rings with the report of your piety and virtue. Deign to remember my mother in your prayers. Perhaps they may prevail on the Almighty to spare her, and should that be the case, I engage myself every Thursday in the next three months to illuminate the shrine of St. Francis in his honor. So, thought the monk, here we have a second Vicencio de la Ronda. Rosario's adventure began thus. And he wished secretly that this might have the same conclusion. He acceded to the request. The petitioner returned him thanks with every mark of gratitude, and then continued, I have yet another favor to ask. We are strangers in Madrid. My mother needs a confessor, and knows not to whom she should apply. We understand that you never quit the abbey, and, alas, my poor mother is unable to come hither. If you would have the goodness, reverend father, to name a proper person, whose wise and pious consolations may soften the agonies of my parents' deathbed, you will confer an everlasting favor upon hearts not ungrateful. With this petition also the monk complied. Indeed, what petition would he have refused if urged in such enchanting accents? The suppliant was so interesting, her voice was so sweet, so harmonious, her very tears became her, and her affliction seemed to add new luster to her charms. He promised to send to her a confessor that same evening, and begged her to leave her address. The companion presented him with a card on which it was written, and then withdrew with the fair petitioner, who pronounced before her departure a thousand benedictions on the abbot's goodness. His eyes followed her out of the chapel. It was not till she was out of sight that he examined the card, on which he read the following words, Doña Elvira d'Alfa, Strada di San Iago, four doors from the Palace d'Albornos. The suppliant was no other than Antonia, and Leonella was her companion. The latter had not consented without difficulty to accompany her niece to the abbey. Ambrosio had inspired her with such awe that she trembled at the very sight of him. Her fears had conquered even her natural loquacity, and while in his presence she uttered not a single syllable. The monk retired to his cell, whither he was pursued by Antonia's image. He felt a thousand new emotions springing in his bosom, and he trembled to examine into the cause which gave them birth. They were totally different from those inspired by Matilda when she first declared her sex and her affection. He felt not the provocation of lust. No voluptuous desires rioted in his bosom, nor did a burning imagination picture to him the charms which modesty had veiled from his eyes. On the contrary, what he now felt was a mingled sentiment of tenderness, admiration, and respect. A soft and delicious melancholy infused itself into his soul, and he would not have exchanged it for the most lively transports of joy. 
Society now disgusted him. He delighted in solitude, which permitted his indulging in visions of fancy. His thoughts were all gentle, sad and soothing, and the whole wide world presented him with no other object than Antonia. Happy man, he exclaimed in his romantic enthusiasm, happy man who is destined to possess the heart of that lovely girl. What delicacy in her features, what elegance in her form! How enchanting was the timid innocence of her eyes, and how different from the wanton expression, the wild, luxurious fire which sparkles in Matilda's! Oh, sweeter must one kiss be, snatched from the rosy lips of the first, than all the full and lustful favors bestowed so freely by the second. Matilda gluts me with enjoyment even to loathing, forces me to her arms, apes the harlot and glories in her prostitution. Disgusting! Did she know the inexpressible charm of modesty, how irresistibly it enthralls the heart of man, how firmly it chains him to the throne of beauty, she never would have thrown it off. What would be too dear a price for this lovely girl's affections? What would I refuse to sacrifice, could I be released from my vows and permitted to declare my love in the sight of earth and heaven? While I strove to inspire her with tenderness, with friendship and esteem, how tranquil and undisturbed would the hours roll away! Gracious God, to see her blue downcast eyes beam upon mine with timid fondness, to sit for days, for years listening to that gentle voice, to acquire the right of obliging her, and hear the artless expressions of her gratitude, to watch the emotions of her spotless heart, to encourage each dawning virtue, to share in her joy when happy, to kiss away her tears when distressed, and to see her fly to my arms for comfort and support. Yes, if there is perfect bliss on earth, "'Tis his lot alone who becomes that angel's husband. "'While his fancy coined these ideas, "'he paced his cell with a disordered air. "'His eyes were fixed upon vacancy, "'his head reclined upon his shoulder, "'a tear rolled down his cheek, "'while he reflected that the vision of happiness for him "'could never be realized. End of chapter 6, part 1 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.